In preparation for Scott Jathani's visit next week, we've been using what I would call his platform book for a series of um, books that he's written. Um, I'm using it as a springboard for a spring series. The, the series that he has written includes topics like what if Jesus were serious about the church, what if Jesus were serious about prayer. Next Saturday, unique opportunity. There is already a lot of you signed up, so I'm, I'm super excited about that. We're going to hear about um, a concept that Sky wanted to talk about, actually, because he said, you know, the average, you know, concept that we have about heaven, especially for believers, is just, uh, it's essentially pretty off base. And what you think about heaven actually will impact the way you live your life today. So that book won't be out to the fall, but he's going to be here talking to us about it next Saturday night. And then, of course, we're going to open it up. Um, you know, we're going to have some dessert together, and we'll open it up for Q&A. Excited about what's going to happen. Sunday, we're going to be talking about with. If I was to, I, I, um, I, because I have to speak every week, I read a lot of books. Um, and so I would tell you in, in, in my Christian walk, that's one of the top five books I've read. So if you haven't read it, you should read it, and um, if you have read it or haven't read it, you should hear him come, you should hear it from the horse's mouth. We won't tell him I refer to him as a horse when he's here next week. So we are asking ourselves, as this community of faith, right, what if Jesus really were serious about his most famous teaching? What if he wasn't just kind of winking at his disciples and saying, you don't need to take this seriously? It's known as, we know it, as the Sermon on the Mount. In the introduction, um, Sky says that based on his experience, our society actually is not what, what we think. Our society is actually hungry for precisely this kind of integrity and gentleness and kindness and love that Jesus puts forth and reveals in this most famous teaching. And that we who claim to be his followers and seek to have our lives shaped by his kingdom, Jesus the new king, if we would actually... We do actually hold the antidote to the division and the anger that's poisoning our culture. If we want our friends, our neighbors, our culture to take Jesus more seriously, his challenge is that maybe as followers of Jesus, we should try it first. And after that, if the culture still rejects Christians in our message, at least it would be for the right reason. And so that's what we're trying to do over the next bunch of weeks. That's what I'm trying to do. And it's challenging. You're going to see that this morning. And that's what I'm encouraging each of you to do. And it's challenging. I'm going to encourage you, or I'll show you that this morning. Jesus went from town to town declaring what he would refer to as his gospel, the good news of Jesus. And it was this, that the kingdom of God is near because Jesus, the king, has drawn near. In his, first, his most famous of teachings, Jesus, on the, in this Sermon on the Mount, tells us what the kingdom looks like, who's invited into it, the problem is, as we looked at it last week, right, we, we, we began the way Jesus begins. He begins with what we traditionally refer to as the Beatitudes. This, this teaching of Jesus is, well, if we're honest, at least to what the Bible calls our flesh. That's kind of the unregenerate. If you're a follower of Jesus, right, you have, you've been given the Holy Spirit. You have new life that resides within you. But there is still that old man that, 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 that exists, our old regenerate selves. And it's very powerful. It, it is in my life, and I believe it probably is in many of your lives. And I have to tell you, to the old man, the old regenerate John, the kingdom that Jesus is inviting me into and the one he's inviting you to, if I'm just being honest, is oftentimes, at face value, less than enticing. 
Now, if you think I'm overstating things, I took the liberty of consolidating into just one list the, the things, the people that Jesus say are blessed in his kingdom, the ones that, that word there in, 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 in the Bible, that word that's translated blessed, it means things like the ones that are to be admired, the joy-filled, the fulfilled, the happy in the kingdom of God. So according to Jesus, here's who they are. Jesus recommends, do we have this, Dina? Jesus, Jesus recommends that we be poor, sad, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, peaceful, persecuted, Insulted people that are glad about an unspecified reward in heaven. That's how he opens the sermon. I, I love, um, I, if you think about it, right? Imagine being a follower of Jesus in the first century. And maybe you've had that, that experience now. You've come to faith in Christ and you go back and you're telling your fa- friends and your family about, about Jesus, right? Imagine in the first century... You're going back and you're telling your friends and your family about this new rabbi that has come to town, and, and you begin to, you've begun to follow his messages, and it's changing your life. And so you convince them that this is the big day. Jesus maybe had been saying something about that, that there was going to be a significant teaching, and so you convince your family and friends to head to the base of the mountain with you that day. I want you to imagine the feeling as Jesus is preaching that message. The looks that your friends are, are giving you, right? The, the side-eye glances from those first century pews. Poor, meek, right? I mean, it'd be like taking, inviting your friends to, to church here at Mendham on a Sunday, and I, I got up and began preaching on snake handling, right? You're looking around going, oh, not today. That's how radical this message was to these first century Israelites. They are, you've got to understand the audience, they are living under a highly intermingled nationalistic religious system that Jesus is challenging profusely at the time. At the same time, they're living under violent Roman oppression, which Jesus, the supposed savior of the Jewish people, seemed uninterested in overturning. Blessed are the meek, he's standing up there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the peacemakers. They, like we today, seem much more interested in not following men with that message. We like strong leaders, right? We like successful leaders. We like wealthy leaders. We like self-proclaimed fighters. Imagine the political ad, vote for me, I'm meek, right? I mean, can you imagine your friends, maybe a few minutes in, one of them kind of, you're sitting at the base of the mountain and you're listening to this and your friend looks at you and he goes, hey, hey, come here, come here, come here. So he takes you outside, maybe behind the fish and loaves concession stand, right? And he says, dude, are you kidding me? You want, you want me to follow this guy? Do you, do you know what happens to people that live like this? People walk all over people like that. People that live like that get taken advantage of, right? People like that don't win. People like that wind up in last place. This is a a ticket to destitution and persecution. This is not the life you've always wanted. And so, you know, you're a little intimidated, right? You you feel bad. You invited them all to it. And and so you you respond, well, you know, I know, I know. Sometimes he can be a little radical and... And he's, I know he's being a little a bit out there this morning, but, but you know, listen, 
Jesus, I've been following him for a few weeks. He teaches in parable a lot and, and stories. This is, this is probably just kind of some kind of imagery for a better story. It, it's probably a metaphor. I, I'm sure he's not really serious about this stuff that he's talking about. Now, I, I, I bet if we went back, I bet he's clarifying it now. Let, let's just you know, give, give him a second chance. Let's go back in. And so you grab your over, overpriced fish and loaf sandwich. Maybe pick up some wine, some, some, some wine in a souvenir cup. And you head back in to the Jesus concert just in time to hear him clarify the message for your friend. Perfect. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Your friends just look over at you again. I like uh, Scott Jathani's take on this. He said, when Jesus spoke about persecution, he made it clear that not all suffering his followers experience is persecution. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. And he went on to, to say, blessed are those who are persecuted on my account. When we suffer for doing what's right, when we suffer for being identified with Jesus, that's when we're blessed. But there are plenty of Christians who claim persecution who are actually due, suffering due to their own foolish or unrighteous behavior. Uh, some suffer for righteousness, but frankly, some Christians suffer because they are insufferable. Right? Persecution, as John Stott definitely de defines it, is simply the clash between... Listen now, this is interesting. Persecution is simply the clash between between two irreconcilable value systems. The value systems presented by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are radically incongruent with the ones that are presented by the world. Therefore, anybody who follows Jesus, right, to follow, follows the, the, the principles, the values of that kingdom should expect to be misunderstood, maligned, or mistreated. In fact, persecution is often seen as a sign of genuine faith in Christ. That's why Martin Luther listed suffering as an identifying mark of the true church. How about that? You ever look for, I'm going to do a little church shopping. What are you looking for? I'm looking for a church that's suffering persecution. Then I'll know it's real. A desire to be seen as a genuine Christian, however, can cause us to claim persecution when none exists. And this temptation is compounded by two additional realities of our present age. First, the privileged position that Christian faith and values once enjoyed in our culture is diminishing. As this occurs, for example, removing Christian prayers or symbols from public spaces, the loss of privilege can be misinterpreted as persecution. Second, we live in a strange time when some want to claim the label of victim in order to accumulate cultural and political power. In other words, there can be a twisted upside to being seen as a persecuted group today. It can be used as a leverage point against cultural and political opponents or to excuse one's own unrighteous attitudes and behavior. We must resist all of these temptations. Persecution is never something sought by a Christian. It is a byproduct. This is so interesting. It is a byproduct of seeking first the kingdom of God rather than the privileges of the world. And so, if you follow along, it's really interesting. Jesus is addressing uh, right now the question many of you have in your head. He addresses his audience's question and yours before you get to ask it, which is, how do you... If that's true, if I should expect that, if I'm going to follow these kingdom principles, how, how do I engage with a culture where there's a, a radical clash of values, right? The ones that I live out, right, are going to make me 
our church. If you live out these values, they are going to make you, I would say, unusually attractive in one way, but at the same time, easily taken advantage of and potentially persecuted. What is our role in a world when kingdoms collide? Jesus goes on. He actually addresses it immediately because I think he realizes people are going to ask that question. And he gives two roles and a reason. Two roles and a reason. It sounds like what they serve in prison for dinner. Two roles and a reason. I'll read them together and then circle back and, and tear them apart a little bit, right? This is pretty famous stuff, church person or not. You've actually heard some of this before, and you might not even know that it, it comes from Jesus. I remember the first time when I was becoming a believer, I opened the Bible and I read, started reading in Genesis, right? Where else do you begin but the beginning of the book? And I got to Noah's Ark, and I'm like, this is in the Bible? Like, I thought it was a kid's toy, right? I didn't have any concept for it. This is in the Bible. Salt of the earth you know that guy, he's just the salt of the earth. That's Jesus' idea. That's, that's his wording. But it, it's become so prevalent, it's actually become almost culturally counterfeited. Here's what he said. He goes, you guys, you girls, you, my followers, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people uh, light a light and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, right? Because he's teaching a lot of things which, which are really offending the religious people of the day. He goes, I haven't come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them, to bring them to their appointed conclusion. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Interesting, they still get there. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, now it's interesting about who's not going to get there. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. At which your friends probably leave and go back for another glass of wine at the concession stand. Two roles and a reason, right? First, first role in a world where our values, your values, what we believe to be the kingdom values of Jesus are being ridiculed and, and where you're starting to pay a price for it, right? Role one, salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Your purpose, my purpose, our purpose, the church's role in the culture is to be salt. What does Jesus mean when he says that? Well, here's what I would tell you. Just like last week, Jesus' teaching here is so multifaceted, right? It is, it's so deep. Some of you know in the first century, salt played a lot of, of very important roles in the everyday lives of people. It was used everywhere for everything, I would tell you it still is today, it's just that we're not aware of it, right? Because we just, we just, it just happens in our world, right? You're not spending a lot of time reading ingredients. They knew it. They saw it. They used it themselves. Today, we miss it. Few things in creation are more ordinary than salt. Most of us have, have interacted with it in the last couple hours, whether we realize it or not. 
Salt is used to make leather, pottery, soap, detergents, rubber, clothes, paper cleaning products, glass, plastics, and pharmaceuticals. Almost none of you are sitting here this morning that have not dealt with salt yet already today. It sits largely unnoticed on hundreds of millions of cafe and restaurant tables around the world. But unlike pepper, which kind of resides right next to it, right? Salt is actually essential for life, for your health. It's always been eaten by human beings. Wherever we've settled, we spread it across roads when it snows. More than half of the chemical products we make involve salt at some stage. And that's without mentioning the trillions of tons that sit in our oceans that cover 70% of the surface of our planet. Don't you see, you have to understand this to get what Jesus is getting at. Salt is everywhere. Like it's, it's everywhere in everything. It's, it's pervasive. You, you can't get away from it. You actually need it to live. You, it's everywhere and indispensable. You are the salt of the earth. Everywhere, life-giving, indispensable. The most traditional way that this has been understood over the years has to do with the role that salt in the first century and today, right? Some of you that, that are, are cooks understand this, with brines and, and what happens with holiday hams, things like that, right? Fish. The role salt played then and today is a preservative. There were no freezers or refrigerators back, you know, when you went and you bought your concession at the, the, the Lowe's and Fish truck, like you ate it. That was it. You couldn't save it for tomorrow. If you wanted things to last, right, you didn't throw them in the fridge, especially meats and fish, which was the primary, primary food of their day, you preserved them with salt. You encased them in salt. Why? Because salt helps to preserve food. It draws out water and then it inhibits the growth of bacteria. It's multi-purposed. It preserves meat and fish, and it was, I don't know if you realize this, it was crucial to the exploration of the globe, feeding sailors as they crossed oceans, sustaining remote communities. Wars have been fought over salt. That's how valuable salt is. Access to salt influences the outcome of wars. In the Civil War, Union troops, they would capture Confederate salt mines to limit their food supply, and that, that would force them to the coast where they could get salt, but then they would wind up being more easily attacked. What happens when there is not salt? I almost bought an actual piece of rotten, disgusting meat today, but I thought somebody might vomit, so I decided not to. Have you ever actually seen rotten meat, smelled rotten meat? Right? When there's no salt, things rot, things decay, things, things come apart, things disintegrate. They, 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 they smell, right? They make people sick. Jesus is saying that his followers, even though their values might not be respected, even though their values might wind up in persecution, and I'm just going to be honest with you, most of us know little about our values winding up in persecution, okay? Th this was written to an audience that knew a little something about it. Most of us don't know what that's like. We're familiar with lack of privilege, not persecution. There's still, even under persecution, to be salt in that community, the community that was persecuting them. They were to be preservative agents of that community. Tim Keller has a good line about our faith. He says, Christianity is, both, is to be both attractive 
to and attracted to people who don't agree with it, who don't live the way that, that we do or you do, who don't believe what you believe or value what you value. Christianity should be attractive to and attracted to those kind of people. As opposed to the religious people, both the ones in Jesus' audience then, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and religious people today who both then and now are, are usually the ones that are, are not making the message attractive to and are not attracted to those, those kind of people, right? They're usually quite alienating to those people who disagree with them. Very radical teaching here. If you really understand it, it's still quite radical today. It's an uncomfortable teaching. Christianity, by our nature, Jesus says, when we see things that are rotten, Broken, breaking down, where, 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 where there's something happening where, where people are, are being made sick, places that literally stink. Christians are supposed to do what salt does. You're supposed to go there. When we see somebody whose life is falling apart, coming undone, you don't avoid them. You go in. You don't, you don't cross to the other side of the road and pretend that everything, well, I'm sure everything will be okay. You go in, you enter their pain. Blessed are those who mourn. When you see a neighborhood socially or economically falling apart, what do Christians do? Let's be honest. We move to nicer neighborhoods. Jesus goes, no, 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 you're not getting it. You're salt. You go in. Think about our ministry partner, Potter's House, what they do in the Guatemala City garbage dump. Everybody wants out of that zone. Potter's house goes into the zone. And not just on a visit. They go in and like they set up, they build there. Followers of Jesus are supposed to head into the broken places and preserve them. Religious people, both then and now, often now at least, they're not attracted to these kinds of people or places. They do everything they can to avoid them, to, to ensure that they stay unaffected by those places. Back then it would be to, to become ceremonially impure, right? These people, these places, they don't attract religious people. They repel religious people. They don't go in. They move out. They don't bind themselves to the meat. Instead, they bind themselves to one another, and they head to a place where they can be in a more pure environment. And we see this today with everything from which states we move to to which schools we go to. Am I right? But not just attracted to, but attractive to. Salt has another job. Salt tastes good. Salt preserves, yeah, that's a major deal. But so is the fact that salt is a flavor enhancer. I love McDonald's french fries. I love them too much. Sometimes I literally will just sit at home and, true story, I'll just be like, mm, I could taste one, right? <laughs> I'm only about seven minutes from a McDonald's, and every once in a while, I feel the shame as I sit in that line, right, waiting to get a McDonald's French fry. And it's funny because the Golden Arches have really set the golden standard for French fries, if you think about it. Every other fast food place is always comparing its fries to McDonald's fries, right? So favored, two to one, and then I go and try them, and they stink, right? And I'm always disappointed because there's nothing like a McDonald's French fry. Why? I don't know for sure, but it has something to do with the salt, right? I know because, like, at the end, sometimes if I really want to embarrass myself, I will, I will lick my finger and rub it around in the bottom of the, in the, bottom of the, the fry thing. 
Don't laugh at me. You, you, I also like White Castle. That's another story. <laughs> my mother-in-law will likely be with us in the second service. My mother-in-law is 89 years old. My mother-in-law pours salt on everything. Pours it on it. I can't understand how the woman is still alive. <laughs> everything has to have salt on it, right? Why? Because salt enhances the flavor of whatever it clings to. The job of salt is to make the things that it binds to more pleasurable, to bring out their taste, to make it more enjoyable, right? I have never finished the fries at McDonald's and said, now that's some good salt. My mother-in-law has never like poured salt all over a steak and go, now that salt was fantastic. Now I finish it and I go, these are the best fries. My mother-in-law, everything she eats, she goes, that was, that was spectacular. We're intended to spread throughout the world, to be ubiquitous, right? And to enhance it, to add flavor to things that would otherwise be bland. Imagine a McDonald's french fry with no salt on it. What would it taste like? Nothing. I can answer your question, nothing. You wouldn't go to get one. Drawing out the blessings of whatever is good, providing a contrast by being within the culture distinct and different. When Paul tells us, right, he says, ensure that your speech is seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's the kind of thing he has in mind. If you're going to be salt in your neighborhood at work, or, or, or work, what does that look like? See, see, we get this wrong all the time. Here's what it looks like. It means that people walk out of your office or walk out of your home and they go, well, here's what they don't do. They don't walk out of your cubicle and go, that guy is so much smarter than me. He's such, a, oh, he's so much of a harder worker. He really, he, he, he's producing so much more than I am. I'm ne I mean, I can't, I'll never be as, as, as successful as they are. There's no way I can possibly compete with him. It should not be that when your neighbors leave your house, they go, oh my gosh, that guy's house was so much nicer than mine. Their family is so much more together than our family. My kids could never live up to the level his kids are. That's not what salt does, right? If you're salt at work, if you're salt in your neighborhood, people walk out of work that day and go, I love my job. You see that? I, I love working here. Why? Because there's a Christian in the booth next to me. I mean, I don't even know it. He wouldn't say that because he probably, he might not even have known it. People drive home at night and they pull in their driveway, driveway across the street from you and they go, I love living here because there's salt in the cube next door, salt in the house across the street. See, salt makes people feel better. And don't get me wrong, don't email me yet. Not about their sin or about their incorrect lifestyles or beliefs. That's not the point. I'll, I'll address that in a minute. But Christians do for the places they go and the people they meet. They leave them feeling better. The place is better for them having been there. Religious people then and now tend to tear things down, right? And make people feel not better but judged and condemned. By the way, Jesus deals with judgment about not judging others in this sermon, right? They make them feel worse than when they got there. Think about how, how Jesus lived his life, who he interacted with, how he interacted with them. Jesus, a friend of sinners. Jesus that somehow was attracted to them and attractive to them. In fact, Jesus will address this later in his sermon. We will too in a few weeks. When he says that his followers of the world would begin to see their own sin as planks in their eye and begin to see other people's sin as, as just merely specks. 
Can you imagine if that was actually true of us, how things would differ in the world? Now, there's a couple practical things, right? There, there are a couple practical things, but as we spoke about last week on these teachings of Jesus, they're kind of like this diamond. When you, when you see it one way, you're like, oh, I got it. And then you spin it another way, and you're like, hmm, I didn't see that facet. Because what Jesus' audience likely knew, in addition to, to salt's role as a preservative and an enhancer, was that salt in the, in the ancient Near East was actually used to destroy evil. There are more scriptural references. I never knew this until I was studying it this week. There are more scriptural references to salt being used in judgment or destruction than any other purpose. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you know some of them. You just never put it together. From the book of Genesis, it's actually a story Jesus referred to when Lot's wife turns back and looks at the city of Sodom. She is turned into a pillar of? Moses warned the Israelites if they break God's covenant, their land will be, quote, burned out with brimstone and salt. When the prophet Gideon's son, Abimelech, tries to set himself as, up as king of Israel, the men of Shechem rebel against him, and he responds by raising the city and sowing it with salt. The psalmist describes God turning a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. Jesus himself, right, in one of his fiercest judgment paragraphs in the Gospels, he says simply that everyone will be salted with fire. There is a sense in which disciples have the same purpose God scatters everywhere, salties Christians, right, into the world so that they are, they are a way of destroying wickedness, of judging evil, not with their voices and cond condemning words, right, but they, they are people that prevent lust or greed or murder or injustice from taking root. That's why Christians have always, must always, have always been and must always be voices for the voiceless. That's why in the first century, Christians were so radical, treating men and women equally, providing for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. I, I looked this up. I was just going through this myself. Look up the, the, the Wikipedia entry on abolitionists. You'll see, quote, from Wikipedia, it was Christians who initiated and organized the abolitionist movement throughout Europe and the United States. Christians, and I love this, Christians, usually from uninstitutional Christian faith movements, not directly, not directly connected with traditional state churches or nonconformist believers within established churches, were to be the non-religious Christians were to be found at the forefront of the abolitionist movement. It was the irreligious Christians, the salty ones that began the movement and who continue to this day to free modern-day slaves through, through organizations like International Justice Mission. Today, saving and freeing children from being trafficked and abused. See, here's the thing about salt, right? And, and, and this is a good, a good transition to Jesus' comments on light. Salt is delicious. Raise your hand, okay, if you, like, if, you, if, you, if you like salt. You like anything with salt on it? Raise your hand high because I want to show you something. Raise your hand high, right? You like, almost everybody likes salt, right? Okay, and here's my, keep your hands up, hands up. Come on, stick with me. I'm working hard up here. <laughs> keep your hands up for five seconds, right? Now, here's what I know. Here's, what, here's my question. Uh, have you ever come home from work just hankering to sit on your deck and eat a big helping spoonful of salt? <laughs> I thought you liked it. You salt is like me. I'm good in small doses. <laughs> there is a fine balance 
between too much salt and too little, isn't there? Salt, if consumed by itself, it offends the senses. And the same is true of religious communities. We are meant to be in the world, not to remove ourselves from it. Salt by itself is bitter, and it raises the blood pressure. Too much salt, while salt can give life, too much salt in too high a concentration does not preserve things, it kills things, it overruns things. Often, that's what happens in religious communities that separate from the world and turn in towards themselves. Like the New Testament, the, the Pharisees, right? When believers hive off from the rest of the world, they can become fear-driven and condemning in their posture towards the outside world. Bitter, small-minded, flavorless. Yuck. And all the while going, I can't believe I'm being persecuted for my beliefs. But frankly, as Sky Jathani wrote, some Christians suffer because they are insufferable. You, Jesus says, are the light of the world. A town built on a hill it cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everybody in the house. Christians are to be attracted to broken people and broken places, but are also supposed to be attractive to those who don't believe or behave like they do. Jesus was. How, how is it that we aren't? And so what Jesus is saying here is, you don't take this light and put it under a bowl for no one to see. Just like salt has a purpose, right? And once it loses its saltiness, it's pointless, so does light. Light has a purpose. It provides illumination. When you stick it under a bowl, when you tuck it away and hide it away, just like salt, it, it becomes pointless. And this teaching, it can be a little confusing at first glance, right? Because it appears to be like a call to public piety, some form of religious expression that we put on display for others to see, right? However, later in the sermon, you'll see this in a couple weeks, Jesus appears to say the exact opposite. He says, when you do your giving, give in secret. When you're praying, pray in private, right? Don't draw any attention to yourself when you're fasting. How, how do you reconcile those two things in the sermon, right? You're supposed to be a light, right? A, 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 but at the same time, you're not supposed to do anything in public. They seem kind of contradictory, right? Which is it? Jesus goes on. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What we do in public we do anything that's done in public is done to glorify our Father in heaven, not to glorify ourselves. What we do publicly, we do that so that people might know how wonderful and loving and selfless and caring and powerful and mighty and forgiving and patient and kind, yet holy and just he is. Not how great we are. The acts that Jesus said should remain hidden, given, praying, fasting, are practices that relate to my personal devotion to God. My neighbor does not benefit from me fasting. The good works that Jesus compares to the preservative power of salt and the illumination of light, on the other hand, are things that help others. So we're left with a simple guide. If the act is for my benefit or results in my glory, it stays hidden. If the act is for the benefit of others and for the glory of God, you don't hide it. It's all about, if you're honest, okay, it's all about motive. It's about your heart, which is actually what this whole sermon is about. 
both in this version and the version in Luke, we're, we're looking at the one in Matthew, they all end with the same warnings. We discussed them briefly last week. When Jesus gets done with this sermon, he goes, now listen, I want you to understand something. There are two ways to live your life. Old kingdom ways, new kingdom ways. There are two paths, he says. One leads to life, one leads to death. He goes, there's two houses. One stands on, on rock, right? And, and, and the people there will live. One, one, because it stands on sand, crumbles and kills its inhabitants. He says, there's two trees. They both have fruit. One gives life, to uh, the other bears poison. Like our good works, on the outside, all Christian work looks the same, just like the path and the house and the tree. How can you tell the difference? What's real and what's not? Jesus says, you look, and I don't think it's good for us necessarily to look at others' hearts, but you look at your own. After telling them about our roles as followers of Jesus in his culture that does not share our values, how will my followers be known in, this kind of, in, in, in that kind of culture? He tells them to let their light shine before others. But then he says to them, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus says that, I got to wonder if, if the audience goes, oh, because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're the paid righteous guys. They're the super religious guys. They're the good guys. They're the ones everybody admires and looks up to. They not only taught the law, they interpreted the law. Heck, they would make up laws to ensure that they wouldn't come near God's laws. And they went out of their way to make sure that everybody saw and knew how meticulously they kept the law. They were professionally righteous. It's how they earned a living. It's how they earned their identity, their position, their authority. It was all tied to that. And so when Jesus says, your righteousness has got to surpass theirs to enter the kingdom of heaven, can you imagine, like, again, your friends are sitting there listening to this sermon, you're going, I can't believe I bought them today. I can't believe it. Some of you are thinking that right now. <laughs> right? They're sitting there going, well, if that's true, well, then what am I even why do I even bother? I'm done. I'm done. I got a job and I got a family. I can't live the way they live. But what Jesus is about to show them, it's in the rest of the sermon, and you've heard it. He actually... He, he keeps trying to show them over and over. We'll look at it again in, in a few weeks. He goes, I know you've heard it said this, but I say this. The very next sentence is this. He goes, you've heard it said that to people long ago, you shall not murder. Anybody who murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you, anybody that's angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. What Jesus is about to show them is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right, their righteousness looks so, so profound and wonderful on the outside, but it's like a powerful river of righteousness that you would think that could never be traversed. But Jesus goes, you can walk right across it. Don't be intimidated by that. That is an inch deep. What Jesus is about to show them and us is that religious people are concerned with how it looks. They're concerned with the externals. Jesus goes, I don't care. I'm concerned about your heart. What Jesus is saying is that in some sense, we read this and we go, yeah, how do you exceed that righteousness? Jesus looks and goes, that's not hard to exceed. You're missing the point. Remember, quite famously later, maybe this will help you make sense of that. He goes, He's looking at these guys, these Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He goes, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of bones of the dead and everything unclean, kind of like rotten meat. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. 
What Jesus is saying after describing these two roles as salt and light is the reason. We do these things not to perform for God, not to earn something from God, not to be recognized by others and, and put on a pedestal for how wonderful or selfless we are, nor do we do them out of fear of judgment for, from God. In fact, I, I, I would argue if you do them for any of the re those reasons, it makes you no different than the people of the kingdoms of this world who do everything that they do, right, out of two reasons, pride and fear. I don't know, Jesus goes, no, 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 my, the, my followers, it will flow from their heart, a heart that Jesus has gotten a hold of. Do we have work to do? Oh, my gosh. Could you imagine if Jesus' church functioned like this? Remember when this um, came to me so clearly, uh, and I even, I, we've, the world from 15 years ago when this story took place to now has become incrementally divided, and, and because we're so divided even now, I, I fear sharing it because I, 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 can, I can feel the judgment, but about 15 years ago, some friends and I started a, a little thing at night here at church, and we called this ministry Next, and so we started looking at these things Jesus did, and we started saying, hey, what if we took this seriously, Right? And so uh, we, we're like, where would Jesus go, right? He probably wouldn't, his, his highest priority wouldn't just be the gathering on Sunday. Like during the week, he'd be doing crazy things and doing all this stuff, right? And so it led us originally to the Market Street Mission and did lots of stuff at the mission. And, then, and it led us to another place in Morristown where, where there are the only 10 beds available for um, homeless, homeless men that were suffering from AIDS. And so we were just going, trying to be Jesus to, to, to this group of guys. And they had said to us, hey, there's an AIDS walk coming up this weekend in Morristown. Would you guys, would, you, would your church march in it? And so we're like, well, I think Jesus would march in it, so why don't we march in it? And so, uh, you know, I'm just an uncomfortable place for a church guy to be. Shouldn't be, but was. And so we showed up at this uh, march, and, uh, you know, we uh, set up our table which was quite funny. A lot of funny stories here. But anyway, so the March started, and as we headed out, I had my children with me, and they were, they were younger at the time, and there was a, a guy, a religious guy on a bullhorn standing there and just preaching down condemnation on everybody as they marched out. And it was really hard for my kids to understand because they were looking at me going, well, I don't understand this. Like, aren't we serving the same guy? And uh, I mean, I, could, it, it, it's, I would like to say I couldn't explain it back then. I can, it's still hard for me to explain today. But, it, but, but we marched in, and when the march was over, um, we were wearing T-shirts that said the name of our ministry on them, and uh, there were some guys I was talking to, and uh, I, he said, hey, what's, what's your T-shirt said? And I said, oh, this is, uh, this is this ministry. My friends and I are here because we want to proclaim to you the love of God, and, and, uh, and I know the church has done a good job of that over the years, and so we're here. I said, we, we, we would love for you to come. And I said, what's your shirt say? And he said, oh, this is, uh, this, we're all from this gay bar in Bootin. He goes, uh, would you like to come? And I'm like, hey, man. Um, <laughs> and uh, the guy, this is embarrassing, all right? The guy looked at me, and I could sense the rejection and the pain in his eyes. And he said, dude, it's just a bar. And he walked away. You've got a long way to go. Your pastor has a long way to go. It's 15 years ago. Hopefully I'm a little closer than I was 15 years ago. But I fear that as a culture, we've just grown more and more sick of each other. I'll close with this. Scott Sauls in an article entitled Salt of the Earth in a World That's Becoming Tasteless. 
After reminding those of us who complain about persecution, that, that he said, look, salt always does best as a minority, agreement, uh, a minority ingredient. Same is true of Christians who are engaged with the world and culture around them. We are meant to serve the world as a life-giving, prophetic, love-driven minority. We must begin to see ourselves not as a moral majority, but as a life-giving, standout minority, as salt sprinkled around the whole dish, touching and penetrating every course. What does salty, salty Christianity look like? It looks like the best babysitters who clean the dishes before the parents arrive home, who leave the place better when they found it. Likewise, Christians are, are to put in the world by, Christians are put in the world by God in the name of Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to leave the world better than we found it. There are so many examples of this. All but one Ivy League university, except for one, was founded by Christians. Let's keep doing that, he said. The first hospitals were founded by Christian ministers and benefactors, and there are now hospitals all over the world whose names include the word saint, pointing to their Christian beginnings. Let's keep doing that. As secular journalist Nicholas Kristof says, evangelical Christians are the most self-giving, exemplary servants to the world's poor. Let's keep doing that. Rembrandt painted world-class paintings for the glory of God. Beethoven and Handel made world-class music. Dostoevsky wrote world-class literature. Let's keep doing that. Evangelical leader Kevin Palau recently partnered with an openly gay mayor in Portland to resource and bless an underserved public school. Let's keep doing that. A little Baptist church in Texas pooled funds together to pay for an outspoken anti-Christian atheist medical needs. Let's keep doing that. But what if people misunderstand our intent? What if by being so in the world, people start to think we're soft on truth? He writes, and listen to the end, he writes, if we have to choose, and sometimes we have to, I would tell you the scriptures say mercy triumphs judgment. He said it is better to be misunderstood and labeled as too soft on sin than it is to be misunderstood as self-righteous, harsh, and stern. Jesus was regularly accused of being a glutton and a drunk, even though he was neither. Why? Because he lived his life around drunks, prostitutes, and shady tax collectors and the like, and he never felt the need to explain himself. Jesus welcomed sinners, and he ate them, ate with them. Mustn't we... And then he quoted Tim Keller. He said, Christians are called by God to be living so sacrificially and beautifully that the people around us who don't believe what we believe will soon be unable to imagine the world without us. Let's keep doing that. And if we haven't been doing that up to now, let's start. Because it was in the vicinity, vicinity of this kind of Christianity, the life-giving standout minority, not the so-called majority, that the Lord added daily to the number of those being saved. We are a loved people, so let's go out and love. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's stand and proclaim it in song.